Welcome to the Art of Excellence, home of Fridays on Excellence and exclusive interviews with subject matter experts. Here we go. Welcome to another episode of exclusive interviews with subject matter experts. My name is Scott Kokenauer, and I'm glad you tuned in. Uh, joining me today is Charles Stone. Let me share a little bit about him. He's been a pastor for 40 years, serving as lead pastor, uh, a teaching pastor, associate pastor, and a church planter. He has earned an engineering degree from Georgia Tech, a master's of divinity from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a doctorate of ministry from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. But his most recent degree is an executive master's in the neuroscience of leadership from the Neuro Leadership Institute. He's completing a post-baccalaureate certificate in therapeutic models of mindfulness from Wilfrid Laurer University and a graduate certificate in mind, brain, and teaching from Johns Hopkins University. You can see here the website where you can find Charles. He is at charlesstone.com. And I want to bring him on here. And Charles, thank you for joining us. Scott, great to be with you. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's quite of a, a laundry list of things. And I didn't even include some of the other trainings like uh, Professional Christian Coaching Institute and all that. Um, I'm, I'm most intrigued by the degree it, from the Neuro Leadership Institute and the neuroscience of leadership. That's mm -hmm. neuroscience and leadership mm -hmm. coming together. It's pretty fascinating. And we'll get into that in a moment. But um, I thought we'd start by uh, starting from the beginning. What was it like growing up as a Charles Stone? <laughs> well, uh, I grew up in a traditional family. I had one sister and we always had a dog or a cat. And my parents were were believers, so it was a it was a relatively stable family. We didn't have you know extra lots of extra money. My dad was an engineer, so our basic needs were taken care of. And I was a geek. I never was a very good athlete. Just to give you an example, I tried out for the basketball team. I was not coached in what you're supposed to what attire you're supposed to wear. So I wore sandals and bright orange socks. <laughs> I, I did not make the team. No. Did <laughs> so, you make the uh, cheerleading? Squad. No, I did not even make that. You know, I could run fast, but that was about it. Okay, but, you know, pretty normal upbringing in in the southern part of the U.S. Sure. <laughs> okay. So, do you have a fond memory as a child? Yeah. That you think back on. Well, a couple of fond memories. One of them was I love I, I love animals. I love water. And when I lived in uh, outside Atlanta, uh, down the street in the woods was a was a pond. And I, when my mother couldn't find me, she knew that I was always there. I was pulling up rocks, looking for salamanders and polywogs and those kind of things. So I just loved spending time alone and doing that. And one other memory when I was, one of my earliest memories, I think I was maybe six years old. I wasn't, I was kind of a sickly kid until I had my tonsils out. Then I got healthy. Um, I was in Lloyd Nolan Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama, and this is the days before private rooms. It was just this big ward, you know, kids' yeah. ward. Yeah. I think I must have had pneumonia or something, but I was so lonely and just, you know, missing my parents. And I remember one night at the end of that hallway, way down at the end, I saw someone walking toward me. It is my dad. He'd come to visit me, and he, I remember he brought me a little pack of juicy fruit gum, a little yellow package. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just remember that. That was just a very significant moment for me. 
Oh, that's great. That's great. It's great to be able to look back on moments like that, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Twenty twenty. You know, <laughs> obviously, that is the topic on everybody's mind, um, and a little bit into twenty twenty one as well. But um, are there any lessons that you've learned in twenty twenty that surprised you? I mean, you know all about leadership, about pastors. Mm-hmm. Was 2020 different than most years? Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, well, of course it was. <laughs> as far as impacting leadership, what, what surprised yeah. you? Well, I think three or four things stand up to me. One of them was that I never imagined not going to church over a long period of time. Like as we're taping this right now up here in Canada in Ontario, we're on a very significant lockdown. We've not had church for like four weeks and we can't have it for another three or four weeks. And we were locked down in March as well for like, I don't know, 10 weeks or, or more. So mm-hmm. I never imagined that. And yet it opened up opportunities for us to expand online presence, maximizing technology. So that's one, that's one, one lesson. Another lesson I learned, and I had to come to this, understanding about a month into when COVID really hit, you know, in March, that expectations revised downward did not hurt as much as I thought. You know, I I still had dreams and still do for our church, you know, continuing to grow and reach the community. We'll still do that. But what they're saying now is it's going to be on a smaller scale. Once I came to that settled conviction, I realized, you know, okay, I'm okay. God's got me through this. Changing that a bit is is okay. Mm-hmm. And I think a third lesson, Scott, was this, that constraint, which we all are experiencing, can lead to creative change. It mm-hmm. can. It can choose not to. And right. one specific way that I've, I've, I've done this is, obviously, one of my crafts is public speaking, you know, it's bringing messages as a pastor. And I'm a kind of techie person. I'd use the iPad to follow along my notes when I would speak. But I embrace a new way of communicating since we'd still do you know, a very high, a high quality with the size of our church, high quality uh, online experience. I found ways to use my iPad in ways that maximize attention of the listener. So this yeah. forced constraint led to these, these insights. What do, you, what do you think makes the difference um, between someone who, you know, say two people experiencing the same constraint one becomes more creative the other doesn't what what do you think is one of the things that makes a difference that's a very very good question so i'm going to kind of answer off the top of my head i think Mm -hmm. i think that um you know god wired uh all of us differently i uh while I, i think i'm rooted in the present i'm always thinking about the future Mm-hmm. What what can be the next hill to climb? What's the next goal to set? And that's one of the ways I've kind of kept myself mentally healthy, not staying in the like, okay, we can't do this and can't do that, but this is an option going forward. So I think a person who has that kind of a mindset, whether they're wired that way or you know they grew up that way, I think that's that's important. I think secondly, I alluded to this, uh, mental health. Uh, mental mm-hmm. health has really been a huge conversation point. Uh, during this time, we did a, uh, did a message series on this. I uh, I think I'm probably fairly mentally healthy, but I realize I got weaknesses and I work on those. Right. But I I came to a point uh, like a month into this 
in what I call my hole. Like the first month, it was just like, I work 25 straight days, one day off. Don't recommend that. But, you know, when, when you have to, leadership have to, has to rise to the top. Yeah. But when I came to some of these changing expectations, kind of get into a new routine, my mind was clear and I began to think how how I can maximize with limitations, constraints, what we are. So I think mental health, keeping good mental health helps that mindset. Yeah, I, I've um, for years subscribed to the idea that we don't rest from our work. We work from our rest. Therefore, it's mm. an investment and not a leftover. Yes. And every day starts the night before. Um, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, that's, I, I have violated it enough times to prove that it, that it is actually true. We, we work from the rest that we get, yeah. and then that gives us the energy, mm-hmm. makes us uh, mentally healthy as well. Mm-hmm. So speaking of 2020, in my reading, the fact that you are mindful can be an incredible, powerful thing for a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about mindfulness. I know you've you've been really studying this and the plasticity of the brain and the you know all that sort of thing. Um, how do you stay mindful, and what is it all about? Mm-hmm. Well, my journey actually began. Um, some 30 plus years ago on a Christmas morning in a high chair. I was not in the high chair, but my youngest <laughs> daughter was, yeah, like a little okay. bit. <laughs> okay. Our, our Tiffany was a year at, at the time. And my wife and I, now three preschoolers, were visiting her parents in Mississippi. So I had high chair duty. I was feeding Tiffany you know, pureed peaches or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Scott, as I, as I lifted up the spoon to her mouth, I noticed her left eye was quivering. Now, if you got kids, that's like, that's not right. So we freaked out a little bit. And down the street was a, a doctor. And he, he said, yeah, come on by. I'll, I'll take a look at it. He looked at her and said, you know, it's probably something called a strabismus, which is basically uh, your, your eye muscle development. She, he, she'll probably outgrow what he said. But he said, when you get back to Atlanta, where we lived at the time, you might want to see a specialist. Got back, saw a specialist. He says, probably a strabismus. But let's take a picture just in case. I can't scan so I scheduled the CAT scan, went to the hospital, put the CAT scan, came back home to our little rental home. Literally, as I was opening the door, the phone was ringing. Ran into the, our little kitchen, picked up the phone. It was a doctor. I, I mean, this like, that's unusual calling. It's just quickly. He said, right, right. Charles, we've got the CAT scan results. And your daughter has a lesion on the brain. Now, lesion, in my mind, is like a sore. You know, you give antibody, it goes away. Then he said something that changed our lives and directed me on this whole mindfulness path. He says, your daughter has a brain tumor. Hmm. One-year-old girls aren't supposed to get oh. Wow. So fast forward to Tiffany's now, doing well, 35 years old. She's going to seminary. She's had 10 brain surgeries. She's had experimental treatment. Uh, she's wow. one of the most written up brains at Rush Medical Center in Chicago. Yeah. That experience of living in this world of neurology and neuroscience and me viewing Tiffany and seeing when a brain is not working well, what it does, I asked myself, like, is there potentially something wrong with my brain? Not that I didn't have a, I had a brain tumor, mm-hmm. but I, I still struggle with anxiety and worry and some of these kind of things, even though I was a, I was a committed Christian. I did all the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. So that led me on this journey of mindfulness from a biblical perspective. That led me to get this degree and do my master's 
uh, thesis on that. Uh, led me to write this this book on holy noticing that the Moody published a couple of years ago, and has really led me down this pathway that has made a profound difference in my life as I understood mindfulness from a biblical perspective. Now, look what you're doing. In uh, and we'll talk about mindfulness in a minute, but look what you're able to do now because of a a phone call, yeah, as a result of an observation at, in a high chair, yeah, and how you know we were just talking about constraints and how that mm-hmm. generates creativity. This is like a long term thirty year constraint that yeah. that you have been able to use mm-hmm. in the right way. Uh, so talk to us about mindfulness. Yeah, well, mindfulness is is a hot topic today. I think in 2019, maybe 2018, not 2019, uh, Apple's app of the year was a mindfulness app. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's using it there. Uh, the number of papers has arisen literally exponentially studying mm-hmm. mindfulness. Yeah. The vast majority uh, are from a material reductionist perspective. A material reductionist is a person who says, basically, we're just... Hormonal secretions and neural firings that makes us live meat. And when we're dead, we're dead meat. There's nothing left. That's oversimplifying. Yeah. Well, I have a biblical worldview that tells me that there is more to this life than just flesh and blood. Right. And, uh, and by the way, a lot of secular scientists are coming around too. They they wouldn't be a Christian, you know, or a God fearer, but they're realizing there's this component of truth that is not what happens in the laboratory that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. So well, let me pause yeah. you just for a second. Yeah, sure. I, I like to look at the, the use of words in the language since 1800. This is the word mindfulness and, and it, it shows. Interesting. I don't know what year this is when 1960, 70, 80, 2000 something. It, it takes a huge, it, it was never used. In the wow. 1800s and the 1900s, mm-hmm. now we are talking about interviews. So, just for what it's worth, That's I thought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, mindfulness, um, because it is primarily in the secular realm, uh, strong. Um, a number of books, uh, most of the books are written have a, a um, Buddhist leaning. Mm-hmm. I felt there were just not much out there that had a biblical perspective. So I had to discover, like, okay, is mindfulness just a Buddhist thing? Is it just, you know, well, I discovered it, it was not. No. Matter of fact, uh, the Pali language, which is the language of Buddhism, the word mindfulness that's translated mindfulness in English comes from the word sati. The Hebrew language precedes the Pali language. Hmm. Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. You look in the Psalms. David preceded the Buddha by a few hundred years. He talks about this all the time. He doesn't use the word mindfulness, but he talks about meditating and being still before God and quiet before God. So from the believer's standpoint, we had this clear early precedent in the Old Testament of this practice, though it wasn't called mindfulness, it's a relatively newly translated word. Not only that, you look at the history of Christians uh, from the early church on, you find our early church, many early church fathers, 
And then even people that we would mo most likely think of, you know, the evangelical, like like Calvin, uh, like A.W. Tozier most recently. Mm -hmm. There's this rich thread of biblical uh, mindset uh, people in history that have embraced what we would call mindfulness and have written about it. So you have the biblical pattern in the Old Testament. You have rich Christian history. You have the New Testament. A beautiful example of this, of mindfulness, is the story when Jesus visited Mary and Martha's house. Remember the story that Martha, she was going to make a seven-course meal. She was upset, very really upset in the kitchen. And what was Mary doing? <laughs> Wasting her time. <laughs> Wait, yeah, wasting your time. That's right. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus uh, lovingly admonished Martha and said, Mary has chosen what is best. So here's a picture of Jesus. And Jesus was often fully present. Well, well not often. He was always fully present in the moment to the person he was, he was with, the people he was with. So you have this rich biblical tradition. You had this rich historical tradition. Then you have the science that's telling us the great value. So all that being said, I define mindfulness. I call it holy noticing. That's just a term I use. So interchangeably holy noticing and mindfulness. Here's how I define it. it first of all, it's an art. It's not, it's not a science per se, even though science supports it. Holy noticing is this. Noticing God in his handiwork, our relationships, and our inner world of thoughts and feelings. So fundamentally, it means being fully present right now, being aware of God's presence, his power, uh, his provision, his creation, being aware and fully present for those that we're with, being aware and fully present for what's going on inside of us and our minds and our emotions. So strong basis for believers to use this and the research is telling us all kinds of incredible benefits for example what are okay for instance? Uh, harvard university says that uh the uh, uh common uh thread in chronic disease like uh immune disorders immune system disorders uh, cancers uh diabetes although a lot of other factors is that uh, the uh, immune response is out of hand and out of whack. Okay. And this is when all these, you know, we cut ourselves, God created our bodies to send these little worker bees to, you know, we get in, in flames and it brings healing, or if we get a bug in us, then inflame the in, in immune system kicks in. And COVID is really part of the one of the theories is it just it just explodes the immune system where the immune system just starts doing bad stuff. So one of the benefits of mindfulness is it decreases uh, un the unhealthy immune response. That's one, one mm -hmm. benefit. Second benefit is uh, the stress response. You know, a part of the stress response is if the stress factor goes on more than just a little bit, cortisol kicks in. It's called the stress hormone. Now, we need cortisol. It helps us metabolize our food. You know, it's a lot of good, good benefits. If it stays in our system too long, it begins to... Uh, create wear and tear on our body. It's called allostatic load. And what they're finding is mindfulness as it's practiced can decrease some healthy amount of cortisol in the body. So those are kind of some fundamental benefits, but also it helps in sleep. 
Mm -hmm. They found that it actually helps in reducing temptation. They've done studies on like people who are alcoholics or smokers and those who practice mindfulness, it helps them deal with the temptations to take another puff or, or have another drink. So it, it's almost like it's an atomic habit. It's an atomic thing. In other words, when you can do this, when you become mindful, you impact multiple yes. other areas. Yes, that's exactly wow. right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not only personally, but relationally too. Couples who practice mindfulness just get along better. Part of it's probably because they're they're not in their mind when their spouse or their partner's talking, rather they're present and they're really understanding and not reacting and which bodes for better relationships. I wish we had more time and we'll probably get back on together and talk about more of this, but I, my mind goes toward the four basic personality types and, and the impact. Like if, if, if I'm a personality that I'm always thinking, always going, just all the time, uh, that you know, mindfulness, I would think I would have to do things differently to become mindful than the, the methodical, slow, you know, the, the thinker kind of person. Right. So it's, it's highly personal mm -hmm. and highly effective. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And the reality is for some uh, mindfulness is easier than from others. A real activist to sit still for 15 minutes is hard to do. But for yeah. someone who's a little more in introverted, sitting still, being alone is not so not as difficult. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Charles, thank you so much for sharing this insight for us. Um, and I'm I'm praying that those who are listening are able to get that that little bit of inspiration that they need to become more mindful, to look into it a little bit more. Like you said, there's a lot being written. It's not for a lack of information. It's for a lack of implementation. So we want to look at that and, and thank you so much. Charles Stone is, can be found at charlesstone.com. And uh, he is one of our subject matter experts in the exclusive interview series. Charles, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Great being with you, Scott. You have been listening to an exclusive interview with a subject matter expert on the topic of the art of excellence. Thanks for listening.